Good morning. So glad that you're here to worship with us today at Rivermont, and I invite you to turn in your Bible to 2 Samuel chapter 9. We're going to backtrack just a little bit in our study of the life of David to study the story of Saul's grandson, Jonathan's son, Mephibosheth. And this is going to be our last in their series, our summer series on the life of David. And the reason so is that in many ways, this story reveals in one snapshot the story of the whole Bible. We witness David as a king of grace and mercy and extending that grace and mercy toward what could be perceived as an enemy, an enemy to his kingdom and his throne, all because of a promise. It's a micro story of the entire story of the Bible, of how the Lord Jesus has come to us as his enemies to bring us into his kingdom. In late September, we will begin our new study, our series on 2 Corinthians, and that will take us all the way up through Advent. A few weeks ago, you may remember that we studied the passage where David was informed about King Saul and his son Jonathan being killed in battle. David grieved mightily, and we studied what it looked like to grieve before the Lord. And today we're going to see the other side of that awful instance. The day of Saul's and Jonathan's death also had ripple effects within Jonathan's family. His son, Mephibosheth, we read in 2 Samuel chapter 4, was just five years old when word of Saul and Jonathan's death had reached the nurse that was caring for him. This little boy, on hearing that his father and his grandfather had been killed in battle, was scooped up by this nurse to carry him to safety. And as she was running with him in her arms, she tripped and fell, and Mephibosheth's legs, both of them, were broken at the ankles. And this poor little boy became lame in both feet for the rest of his life. Think about what he lost that day. He lost his family. He lost his position as prince and as future king. He lost his wealth now that his family line of kingship was over. He lost his mobility. He lost his ability to have dignity in that society. This poor little boy was really left with very little. Secreted away into exile. Crippled, afraid, penniless and powerless to change any of his circumstances. And the reality is, friends, that we are far more like Mephibosheth than we ever would dare dream. We are born sinners and enemies of God, as Paul says, in our sin. We are powerless to change our status before him. But what does God do with enemies? He loves enemies and makes them his children. Second Samuel nine, beginning in verse one. And David said, Is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now, there was a servant in the house of Saul whose name was Ziba, and they called him to David. And the king said to him, Are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. And the king said, Is there not still someone in the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God to him? Ziba said to the king, There is still a son of Jonathan. He's crippled in his feet. And the king said to him, where is he? And Ziba said to the king, he is in the house of Machir, the son of Amiel at Lodabar. Then King David sent and brought him from the house of Machir, the son of Amiel at Lodabar. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. And David said, 
Mephibosheth. And he answered, Behold, I am your servant. And David said to him, Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. And I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your father, and you shall eat at my table always. And he paid homage and said, What is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? Let's pray. Father, we ask that by the power of your spirit, you would open our eyes to see the beauty of the gospel. That you, Lord Jesus, have come to pursue us while we were yet enemies to make us your children. We pray, Lord, that as we see this truth, you would enable us to live lives worthy of that calling. And we pray it all in Jesus name. Amen. Well, you may know that in the ancient world, whenever a new regime came to power, the accepted and the expected thing would be for the new king to liquidate all the threats to the throne. He was expected, it was anticipated that he would lay hold of his power of the throne by removing and killing any other threat, any other claimant to the throne. We see it all over the Bible. We see it throughout the book of kings. We see it throughout history. Even if you look at the history of the English kings and study the War of the Roses, for example, you will see this principle in practice. Whenever your hold on power feels threatened, you simply cut off the threat. To advance, sometimes you have to tear down someone else. It's not only true with geopolitical relationships, but we face a similar dynamic in how we respond to whomever gets a promotion at work, and we don't. Or to what child might be the favorite in our families, or which house is decorated more beautifully on our street. We compete, and if our hold on the top, if our sense of being best feels threatened, then we are tempted to use those tools of the kingdom of the world. And that is, to advance myself, I have to tear down others. The path of the kingdom of the world, and it's paved with this sentiment. For me to increase, you must decrease. For me to feel good about myself, I have to feel like advancing with my peers and among my peers to have a hold on respectability, then sometimes a little assassination is required. Some character assassination. I'll tear down somebody else, gossip about them, sow dissension about them, slander in order that my position, my cause... And my standing advances. It's the way of the world. And so often it's the way of our hearts. The motive behind that way of the world is what stands behind the words that say, can you believe what so-and-so said? Can you believe what I heard about what so-and-so did? The person down the street, could you believe what I heard about them? The same motive of the kingdom of the world to deal with my pain or deal with my shame. I have to put somebody else down, cast them in a bad light. People who feel empty tear others down. That's what the world does. But that's not the kingdom of God. That's not the way of the kingdom of the amazing grace of God. In fact, that kingdom has principles that are just the opposite. Instead, what we have received from the Lord, we give away. That's the principle of God's kingdom. That's the flow of relationship in God's kingdom. What I have received, I give away. 
And as we live that way with giving away the love that we have received, the grace that we have received, the kindness that we have received from the Lord, and we give it away, we begin to develop a counterculture body. As the church of the Lord Jesus Christ begins to look more and more like the inviting, gracious life of God. Seen in the way that we respond to one another and respond to this world. How do we see it at play here in the story with David and Mephibosheth? Well, first of all, we see that Mephibosheth and you and I have received a gracious invitation. Did you notice who did the seeking out in verse 1? David sought out to find if there was anyone left in Saul's house to whom he could show kindness for Jonathan's sake. That word kindness appears a number of times in this chapter, and it's the same word that we studied from chapter 7 a few weeks ago. It's that chesed, the Hebrew word, that covenant faithfulness, the steadfast and committed love. It is a love that is blood-bought, bought out of the form of sacrifice. It's that kind of love that David looks to give away. He's looking for anyone in Saul's lineage upon whom he could shower that kind of gracious and inviting and self-giving love. And more so, in verse 3, he's specific and calls it the kindness, same word, the kindness of God. That covenant faithfulness of God that he's looking to show to someone who might be perceived as an enemy. That's critical for us to understand what David is asking here. This is someone he's looking for who could be seen as an enemy. Someone who is a rival claimant to the throne. Since yet someone whom he could show the kindness of God, that covenant faithfulness, that blood-bought love of God that he could show to this enemy. He's looking for an enemy to be brought into his presence, that he might love them as a friend. And David is looking to do that because that kindness of God, that covenant faithfulness of God is what the Lord had offered to David. What he had received from God. That grace, the kindness, the love, the faithfulness of God that David had received, he is now looking to give away to someone who may be his enemy. Ziba was one of Saul's wealthy servants. It's reported in verse 3 that there was a remaining son of Jonathan's. He was crippled in his feet. He was lame. Now, what is interesting that we will find out later if you continue reading Second Samuel is for, from chapter 21, Ziba was lying. There were any number of Saul's descendants that were still around. There were any number of sons and grandsons of Saul who were around. But Ziba only mentioned this one, this lame grandson, Mephibosheth. Now, why would he do that? Well, it's that in this world, this world of David's time, someone who was lame, someone who was wounded would be considered a cast off. Someone who was socially outcast. And perhaps Ziba thought, as many others considered in that day, that David was just looking for a ruse to get this one last threat to the kingdom and he would kill him so that there were no rivals to the throne. And if Ziba could think this lame one, he didn't have any chance of being king. He's a social outcast. Nobody's going to promote him to be the king over God's people. So Ziba thought, maybe I could protect the healthy boys by giving Mephibosheth up. Maybe if David took him out, one of these healthy boys would come back later and claim the throne. But that wasn't David's intention. 
David's desire was to be an agent of God's gracious invitation to pursue and seek out an enemy, not to kill him, but to seek him out that he might shower him with covenant, faithful, blood-bought love that changes lives. David sought to be an agent of God's kingdom that moves toward enemies with love and kindness. I wonder if that is what our world experiences through us. I wonder if that's what the world experiences through the church, that we are people who have received amazing kindness and love of God and we seek to find places to give it away to people who might be perceived as our enemies. I wonder if, not just about the church, I wonder for us as individuals, is that what our friends and neighbors perceive about us? That we've received an amazing kindness and love of God and we look for places to give it away, even when someone may be perceived as our enemy. It's not just about the world. It's not just about our city, but even within our families sometimes. Sometimes within our families, it can feel like we are more enemies of one another, right? If you were at my house over the weekend, you would have seen a whole lot of enemy behavior from all of us. Treating one another like we were threats. We were threats to one another's comfort. We were threats to one another's peace. We were threats to one another's maybe even being alive still. And yet that's not what the kingdom of God is about. The kingdom of God is about giving away the love that we have received. A costly love that we have received and yet we give it away. That's what it looks like in the kingdom of God. But you could understand, can't you, why Mephibosheth would be afraid to appear before David. He goes all the way from Lodabar down to Jerusalem to be in the presence of the king. It's most likely that he had never been told about this covenant between Jonathan, his father, and David. He was only five when his dad was killed. So perhaps he expected that he was being invited into his death as a son of disobedience, a son of threat to the kingdom. Mephibosheth knew enough to be afraid When he was hauled before the king. But instead of being greeted with anger. What a gracious invitation we see as David begins in verse 7. Do not fear. Do not fear. Why? Verse 7. For I will show you kindness. The same word again. That covenant faithfulness. Now the translators of this verse struggle to put into English what David said. Some translations of verse 7 say. Surely I will show you kindness. And they're struggling to put into practice or to translate what Hebrew is doing here, that the verb to show is repeated twice. That's what they did in order to to communicate emphasis, to communicate its strong intention. What David literally said was, to show you, I will show you that covenant faithfulness. To show you, I will show you this bond of blood. Surely I will extend to you this blood-bought and faithful love. Because I've received it myself. And we're Presbyterians here. And we believe in divine election. And that is certainly what we see taught here in this story with Mephibosheth. Remember, this boy had done nothing to receive that kind of grace. He had done nothing at all. He was an outcast of society. He was a threat to David sitting on the throne. And yet, and yet, because of a prior promise... Because of a prior love, David poured out a gracious invitation to this boy who could be seen as an enemy. 
And friends, that is a beautiful picture of the gracious gospel of Jesus. Romans 5 tells us that while we were still weak, while we were still enemies of God in sin, while we were sinners, Christ died for us, the godly, for the ungodly, to bring us to God. Christ went to the cross to give His life to make enemies into His children, to make enemies into His friends, to reconcile enemies with a holy God. Christ went to the cross. He sought us out to give His life that we might be brought into His family by a gracious invitation. Our being part of the family of God is, is not because of our potential. It's not as though God looked at us and said, that one that one would probably be a good save. That one might do something important for my kingdom in the future. So you belong to me. It doesn't have anything to do with our merit. It has everything to do with the gracious heart of God that lovingly pursues sinners like us. We have received a gracious invitation from King Jesus. So how does that change us? How might that change the way we live our lives? Well, think about what we talked about just a moment ago in the beginning of the sermon. It is insane for us to think that we need to tear down another needy, broken sinner who said something or did something that I can't believe. And a sinner who's equally offensive before God as I am. Isn't it silly to think I need to tear them down so that I look better by comparison? Isn't it silly to feel like I must rip down someone else's reputation when God has moved toward us? God has loved us. God has pursued us. And all the, 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 the ground at the foot of the cross is level. It's leveled with all kinds of sinners who come simply because of God's loving, gracious invitation. So why would we feel the need to put down a fellow sinner as if somehow... I am more deserving of God's love and grace than that one is. Level ground at the foot of the cross. And any of us who come are there because of God's gracious, loving, pursuing initiation and invitation in our lives. Let us turn away from putting one another down to feel like I have to claw to the top. But instead, let's vow not to put anyone down except maybe on our prayer list. Or not put anyone down, except on a list of people that I will deserve, I will determine to pursue in love, even when it's hard. Even though they may feel like an enemy to me, I will pursue and give away what I've received from the Lord. We are here because of a gracious invitation of King Jesus We also see in this text that Mephibosheth and you and I receive a generous inheritance. Look at verses 7 and 9 and 10. The land that belonged to his grandfather Saul would now be given to Mephibosheth. Isn't that incredible? To this poor, throwaway, social outcast child who had lost everything. He lost his family. He lost his wealth. In that culture, he had lost his dignity. And now he was being given a king's portion of the land. Mephibosheth went from poverty to an inheritance that would make him blush, simply born out of the gracious love of David. He may have felt like he had no hope, he had no future, he had nothing to look forward to. Because in his world, there wasn't an Americans with Disabilities Act. 
This was a world in which if you were crippled, you were an outcast. He had no future to look forward to, but because of the king's love, he had an inheritance beyond what he could dream of having, beyond his wildest imagination. Maybe you're there this morning. Perhaps it seems as though your life is bleak and you feel like you have no future. You have no hope. Maybe you feel like there's nothing to live for in your broken down life today. But friends, King Jesus offers to you an incredible inheritance. All that belongs to Jesus by faith is given to you. What an inheritance we have. God's love, a solid future, an eternal home, a place to belong, a family, a power within us by His Spirit to conform us to that image of Jesus. All of that given to us, all the riches of Jesus' future are ours by faith. What an inheritance we have. What a dignity we have before a watching world. So why in the world would we ever feel like we have to prove ourselves to somebody else? Why would we feel like I need to tear you down to feel better about me? Why would I need to gossip about you or slander you in order to make me feel better as if I have a paltry inheritance when, friends, all we could ever long to receive has been granted in Jesus? You are wealthy in Christ beyond your wildest imagination. You have a future. You have a hope. And it is as secure as Jesus' future and hope. We may have been orphans. We may have been children of disobedience. We may have been enemies because of what Jesus has done. We have received a glorious inheritance. And finally, we see in this text that we receive an, a, a gracious and glorious enfolding into the family. You see in verses 7 and verse 13, Mephibosheth would eat at the king's table always. And in that world, the ancient Middle East, this is an invitation into David's family. Mephibosheth, who had no family, is now being brought into David's inner circle, into his tent, into his family intimacy. In a sense, Mephibosheth, who had no family, David now has adopted him into his family. Mephibosheth had no place to belong, no privileges, no rights, and yet David brought him into the king's tent where he is a son in the house of the king and he eats at the king's table always. Think about what that means for Mephibosheth. A boy who's been an orphan since he was age five. At one time he had no father to protect him when he was threatened. He had no father to come speak to whenever he was hurt. But now he had the king's protection. He used not to have anyone to provide for him when he went without. But now he has the riches of the king's table extended to him whenever he wants. Formerly, Mephibosheth, when he had a need, there was nobody to ask. No one to ask for help. And now all he has to do is to ask the king for help. And all of the king's ability, all of the king's resources are devoted to this boy, Mephibosheth. Once he was lonely. And he had nowhere to belong. And now he's part of David's family. Again, what a beautiful picture of what has happened to us. Receiving an inglorious enfolding into the family of God. 
By faith, you and I are adopted into God's family. We who were his enemies have been given a gracious inheritance and called sons of God. Think of what that means. Once we were objects of wrath, but now we have the rights and the privileges of sons and daughters of the king. We've been purchased by the blood of Jesus and we belong to his family. We no longer have to seek out recognition or honor or glory for ourselves. Because we're children of God. We no longer have to put other people down so that we feel better in comparison. Because we are children of God. We have the resources of the family of God given to us. And when we call out to our Father when we are afraid, we know that He hears. And He hears with the Father's tender ears. We're not praying to some bureaucrat who may or may not care to listen to what we have to say. But we speak to a Father who has purchased us and given us His own name as an inheritance and brought us into His family. Whenever we feel weak and wounded, He sends the Spirit to aid us. When we feel lonely, the Spirit comes alongside us and assures us and encourages us in His love. When we need protection, the King of the universe, the Scripture says, arranges heaven and earth for your good and His glory. And those things are connected. Whenever you feel like you you are in the crosshairs of of some disaster. Know that whatever comes into your life is sifted through the fingers of the one who has purchased you that he might call you his son. And we're given to one another as brothers and sisters in this new family of God. So what have we received that we might give away? We've received a place to belong We've received an invitation into a new family, not out of pride and not because of judgment, but we've received a gracious, loving, enfolding into the family of God. What we have to give to our city is the humility of being loved and in turn loving one another. Hope we realize that of all the world, this should be the place where people come hoping for love to be heaped upon them, for grace and kindness to be piled on top of them. The church is where that should happen. More than any other place, this should be the spot where the weary come to be comforted, where the broken come to be healed, where the sick and the sore come to be bound up in God's grace. This should be the place of all places in our community, not our sports teams, Not our country club. Not our supper clubs. This should be the place. When you're wounded, you come and know that you will be loved and the kindness of God will be heaped upon you. Friends, we give away what we have received. So what have you received from the Lord? Jack Miller, pastor and theologian, once described the Christian life as one beggar, showing another beggar where bread can be found. If the Lord Jesus has proved himself to you to be the bread of life, then turn and give it away to one more needy sinner, for such as we are. May this be the place where grace is magnified, where kindness is unfolded, and the watching world knows 
that it can come and receive the love and the kindness of God. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would make us more and more into that kind of people, that kind of church. We thank you, Jesus, for giving us this story in your scriptures, that we may see that we are Mephibosheth. And you, Lord Jesus, are the kind of God who moves toward people you have no business of loving. Because of your holiness and the great gulf that stands between that and our sinfulness, Lord, there is no reason in the world you should be drawn to us. And yet you are. Because of your loving and gracious and atoning heart. So we pray, Father, that before our family, our friends, our neighborhoods, our places of work, our schools, may we seek to find places to give away what we have received from your hand. The kindness, that love, grace and favor. Show us where we might give it away to a world sorely in need. And as we do so, may we experience a renewed and a deepening fellowship with you, knowing that we are objects of your affection. We as your people are Mephibosheth. We were your enemies whom you have perceived. You have pursued because of the promise, the promise to save. We pray all this in Jesus' holy name. Amen.